0: Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. It's estimated that a third of American adults eat something at a fast food restaurant every day. For African Americans, as Marcia Chatelaine reveals in her latest book, fast food is a source of both despair and power and a battlefield on which the fight for racial justice has been waged since the 1960s, franchise The Golden Arches in Black America, which won a Pulitzer Prize in 2021, is now available in paperback from LiveRight and brings Marcia Chatelain, a professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown University, to our show now. Welcome. Aren't fast food restaurants largely concentrated in some of the country's lowest income and most segregated areas?
1: Yeah, so when we talk about um, food apartheid or we talk about food deserts, we're often not only talking about the accessibility of grocery stores, but we're also talking about um, the hyper-concentration of fast food outlets.
0: Well, according to the Centers for Disease Control, African Americans are more likely to eat fast food than any other racial group in America, which is why fast food is also seen as a reason for the high rates of obesity, diabetes, and heart disease among black people. So is the story you're telling in this book mostly a negative one?
1: You know, I I don't like to think of it as either a positive story or a negative story, but I think it is a story that invites readers into a level of complexity about um, industries and about people that we often put in a category of good or bad, healthy or unhealthy And it talks about the importance of using history to understand the backstory of how we got here exactly. And so when we historicize the relationship between African-Americans and fast food, we uncover a story about the civil rights movement, about the flow of capital in black communities, and ideas about success that come at a very high cost.
0: And you've said that this is the hidden history of the relationships between the struggle for civil rights and the expansion of the fast food industry.
1: Yes, so essentially what I'm looking at is the ways in which um, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968 opened up and reinvigorated conversations about black capitalism. And it's this idea that in order to restore the experience of black citizenship, you need to have economic development. And so the Nixon administration and administrations that came after supported programs in Black capitalism in which federal funds would go into creating Black-owned businesses. The fast food industry also was seeking to expand their footprint in Black communities at this time, and through a series of partnerships with the federal government, as well as major civil rights organizations, they started to recruit and um, endorse black-owned franchises, and this is where we start to see McDonald's really being a significant presence in black communities.
0: Uh, You say the unrest of 1968 is critical to the story because of the impact of economic white flight in the inner cities? What about the suburbs?
1: Well, one of the things that we often point to when we look at the problems that Unfold in the urban core in the latter half of the twentieth century, they talk about white flight, and we often think of it as a problem of um residential flight of the loss of the tax base and its impact on schools, and mm-hmm. to some extent local shopping. But we also lose sight of the fact that for a number of residents who of white residents of communities, they also owned businesses and so the economic white flight happens when you not only lose the tax base and the support for public schools but you also lose the business options in a community and the blight that starts to affect the central business district is about um, white business owners shuttering their businesses and that capital being put towards businesses particularly strip malls in the suburbs and so This space that gets opened up um, allows for the fast food industry to build restaurants and outlets at a lower cost, to put in black franchise owners to operate those restaurants and then to reach a black consumer market.
0: Well, didn't many businesses leave the inner city because they were afraid of future uprisings and didn't want to deal with the questions of accountability that black consumers were making on them?
1: Yes. And, you know, it's a combination of factors. Some was because of um, the suburbanization that was critical for the depopulation of cities. Some of it was a lot of anxiety about being targets of um, animus during uprisings. Some of it was because of the ways the insurance industry also made people very anxious about operating businesses in the city. And, you know, I think that we have to think about the ways that on one hand, we really valorize the idea of small business as an engine of opportunity in the United States. And then we have to also think about the realities of small business ownership as being very stressful on individuals. And at the same time, small business is considered, you know, a key to success and economic growth. And so recruiting black franchise owners to McDonald's was really about playing on this idea of the American dream of ownership and of business ownership as a mark of success.
0: When did the relationship between aspiring black entrepreneurs and McDonald's begin? It starts. Didn't it didn't begin when Ray Kroc owned, had already bought McDonald's. He he wasn't exactly a a liberal, was he?
1: No, he was not. Um, so the relationship begins, um, you know, from my perspective, the second that the McDonald's brothers open a McDonald's restaurant, not because they served black customers, but because the mechanisms that make fast food, uh, successful are predicated on the racial dynamics of the United States, whether it's the segregation of the suburbs, the creation of the highway system. Um, you know, so race is always part of the story, but I think it becomes particularly relevant and important um, in the 1960s when the number of white franchise owners who want to leave cities are increasing, when there is a call to corporate America to be more inclusive in its vision and its operations. And, you know, the recruitment of the black franchise owners likely started early 68 before King's assassination and then King's assassination um, kind of hastened the process to install a Black franchise owner, which happens for the first time in Chicago in 1968, that December.
0: Well, you say that when you were a child in Chicago, you often noticed that museums and cultural sites had signs indicating that they'd been sponsored by the local Black McDonald's Operators Association.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, growing up in Chicago, um the National Black McDonald's Operators Association local chapter of Chicago and Northwest Indiana were really, really um, present in a lot of kind of public events. Um, they would underwrite um, Black History Month programming and back to school um, parades in Black communities. I mean, they really were just um, kind of, you know, in the community. They would go on the radio, encourage people to um To register to vote. So, this was very much part of the kind of social and cultural and philanthropic landscape of Chicago growing up.
0: The first McDonald's drive in was in San Bernardino. Uh, It was created by McDonald Brothers, Maurice and Richard McDonald in 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 1948. When did they start creating franchises?
1: So, the McDonald Brothers, um, they had a few. Franchise agreements with people in other parts of Southern California and Arizona, but it wasn't until 1955 when Ray Kroc visited a McDonald's and this is a scene that's captured in that film, um, The Founder, uh, where Ray Kroc, who's played by Michael Keaton, he, you know, shows up at McDonald's and he sees this incredible operation um, that is quick and um, efficient and he is selling um, milkshake makers and the mcdonald's brothers own um order so many that he wants to see mm. for himself why they need this and so he enters an agreement to then create the mcdonald's corporation that we know today that has franchises he purchases the franchise for two million dollars one million dollars for each brother and then he moves it to suburban chicago And that is the kind of second life of McDonald's that creates the infrastructure for McDonald's and franchising that we know today.
0: And when did uh, black entrepreneurs come into this? As we said, he was no racial progressive. Uh, Um, Was it simply that he was committed to the expansion of McDonald's?
1: um, He understood the importance of expanding McDonald's. He wanted to... um, he wanted to, you know, build his business. And he also, I think, realized what a lot of businesses realized is that they couldn't ignore the black consumer market. That while there were many black consumers who were concentrated in some of poor areas of the country, there was also an ascendant black middle class that had more disposable income and had a desire to, you know, go to restaurants and enjoy, um, these types of activities. Um, the first McDonald's um, that's franchised by an African-American is um, done so in Chicago in 1968. And that Herman is Petty. Herman Petty, and that's kind of the beginning.
0: Uh, now, did he have to convince Ray Kroc to let him buy a McDonald's?
1: No. What happens is um, a man by the name of Roland Jones is kind of dispatched to the cities to find a black franchise owner. Um, oh,
0: they wanted to have black franchise owners. They at this did.
1: Point. I think what they realized is that the white franchise owners who wanted out of the city, they needed to make sure something was done with those properties. They didn't want to leave them blighted. And they huh. also um, knew that there were going to be opportunities for um, federal support for black owned businesses from the Nixon administration. And so they kind of understood Um, That this was an opportunity for them financially, an opportunity to test a consumer market that they hadn't really concentrated on, and to be on the right side of that moment in business
0: history. The federal government was underwriting minority business initiatives, uh, and and that supported the growth of the, the franchises?
1: It helped, definitely. Um, there were a series of programs after the Watts uprising, and that would continue throughout the 1960s to see if um, black owned businesses could help um, in order to create, you know, stability and opportunity in places that had been centers of uprising and racial tension. And a number of these businesses do not survive their hard businesses to maintain. But for the purposes of these federal programs, fast food franchises qualified. And so McDonald's was able to connect black franchise applicants with some of these federal resources um, for loans and for business support in order to make this happen.
0: Because uh, wasn't there a problem with discriminatory lending practices which made it difficult uh, to get bank loans for these Absol- for, for many people who wanted to, to get into this business?
1: Absolutely. You know, um, bank lending discrimination – Um, continues to be a challenge for African-American business owners. And so during this period of time, um, you know, the ability to request a loan, um, having the kind of economic power of McDonald's behind you was no small thing. And McDonald's could provide enough pressure onto the banks to extend lines of credit, as well as, um, you know, secure uh, various debt agreements. And so... This is a story of a period of time in which there is a lot of emphasis on black business ownership, and there's a lot of programs and initiatives, but few have the kind of economic and brand strength of McDonald's behind
0: them. Well, didn't Herman Petty help to establish the National Black McDonald's Operators Association?
1: After Petty's recruitment into McDonald's, he's able to acquire a second store in his portfolio, um, and then... There are other black franchise owners um, who emerge to create the National Black McDonald's Operators Association because they really feel like they're not being supported by McDonald's corporate and they see this as an opportunity to, you know, advocate for themselves and to organize around their common um, concerns.
0: My guest on today's Lettered Low Paid at Large is Marcia Chatelain. Her book franchise, *The Golden Arches in Black America*, is published by Liveright. She is a professor of history and African American studies at Georgetown University, and won a Pulitzer Prize for this book. Have things changed much since the book was published?
1: Um, you know, I think there's some some interesting moments. The book was published in January 2020, and then came out in paperback um, that following summer. And you know, I think the the thing that has changed sense is that the George Floyd summer has really, I think, engaged a lot of people in this conversation about corporate responsibility. You know, what does it mean for the business sector to be engaged in these questions of unfinished uh, business in regards to racial justice? And so I often say that when the book came out, I think people thought it was a novel way of looking at civil rights. And when the book came out in paperback, people were realizing that we need better clarity about what the role of business is in trying to solve or intervene in the problems of racial injustice.
0: Now, the one, the, the unrest of 1968 uh, led to a economic white flight in the inner city, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, whether it was because um, uh, people were concerned about uh, property violence, whether people were just no longer invested in the community um, for a number of reasons. Uh, There were fewer businesses um, and as a result, there are fewer local jobs and there are fewer resources in terms of getting basic needs. So again, when we think about business shifting out of cities to the suburbs, we think about it in terms of what consumers can or cannot get but there's also the question of, of the jobs that are then become Mm. uh, fewer and far between in that community.
0: And what about abandoned stores? Was that an issue?
1: Yeah. Abandoned properties um, are always, you know, um, reason for concern. And so part of what McDonald's strategy has been um, since those early days of Ray Kroc is to purchase um, property um, on which they're built. And so, There was a lot of incentive to make sure that um, restaurants did not um, remain um, abandoned for too long. And so in those early days of black franchise owners, you see the transferring of um, properties from white ownership to black ownership for that reason.
0: But wasn't there a drop in the value of the property in those neighborhoods?
1: Yes. So when, um, neighborhoods experienced these types of uprisings, the value of the property declined, um, and the, the property values of, um, kind of, um, of, of, of um, unoccupied, um, lots also declined. And so as a result, um, this was a great opportunity for the fast food industry, particularly like, um, McDonald's to purchase land and to build, um, restaurants at a lower cost
0: now uh, how much had did uh, buying a franchise cost before this and how much afterward
1: oh that varies depending on location um the investment was high you know in the 1960s the tens of thousands of dollars you know now closer to millions um and so the cost would sometimes be underwritten um, by McDonald's, um, sometimes people resorted to, uh, loan sharks in order to get the money that hmm. they needed in order to pay for the franchise, uh, fees. So uh, this is, you know, a very financially lucrative opportunity. So the buy-in costs were very high.
0: What about the role of women in this story? Hadn't they been largely banished from McDonald's after... The McDonald brothers decided they wanted to focus on mechanization.
1: Yeah, you know the the hyper mechanization of of McDonald's um, led them to believe that um, uh, car hops would distract customers and. Um, they wouldn't be the kind of best use of um, labor, so they moved away from hiring women from the stores, and a lot of they people, felt the
0: women would flirt with customer, or customers. They flirt with would flirt customers, with the
1: women. and um, you know it was a different kind of operation after they decided to scale down the menu, and so you know part of what um, you know McDonald's really wanted to focus on. In those early days was a level of efficiency. And so women were kept out of the stores and not hired. And people often credit the African of bringing them back and allowing them to, you know, rise in the ranks in terms of management. And so, you know, it's it's really in the late 60s and early 70s that, you know, women are back working in the McDonald's restaurants and they are proving themselves as, you know, good workers who can then become managers.
0: Now, uh, another issue here is wages. Um, aren't most people, and I'm, I'm assuming uh, this also affected the women, uh, being paid minimum wages with little prospect for advancement?
1: I think that this has always been one of the sources of criticism for the um, Um, fast food industry you know that there is a perception that fast food is a first job um, that it is a job that young people take for um, you know for the purposes of you know movies and dates and and hanging out with their friends but the reality is is that a lot of working people who are supporting families work in the fast food industry and that the wages are too low and that it creates a revolving door of people having to move on to other jobs to try to make more money or have two jobs of perpetually being stuck in a cycle where they're not um, afforded the opportunity to work a regular schedule of 40 hours a week. And all of this has implications um, because then you have an industry in which people are not able to stay long enough in order to um you know climb the ranks and there's no consistency um it's very important um for a business to be successful to have a consistent workforce and fast food because of its low wages and some of its practices they haven't been able to cultivate that
0: was is the story similar with other fast food uh, chains burger king for example or uh did they develop differently?
1: You know, they do similar things. McDonald's is such a standard bearer for the fast food industry that um, when McDonald's goes on this kind of recruitment effort of African-American franchise owners, Burger King, follows Suit, Kentucky Fried Chicken, um, Taco Bell, all of the fast food brands see the incredible success that they're having with the African-American market, and they want to replicate that for themselves. So there's definitely, um, you know, some... Um, You know there's definitely some um imitation of creating the programs and of the recruitment and really trying to maintain those partnerships with the civil rights organizations as well as the federal government in supporting that
0: should i assume that if i see a a mcdonald's in a uh, largely black neighborhood that it is owned by a, a black entrepreneur or Uh, And if I see one in uh, the the suburbs, it is not?
1: Um, That is likely, um, depending on what part of the country you live in. Um, One of the claims that was made by a group of Black franchise owners is that, you know, they are concentrated in some parts of the country. These are um, claims that are made, um, you know, Um, You know, claims that are made by black franchise owners since the late 60s that they have, they're often concentrated and relegated to certain parts of the country. Um, But on the whole, um, the urban core, predominantly African-American areas have black franchise owners in them.
0: Should we blame fast food for the rising rates of obesity and diabetes among black Americans?
1: Um, I don't think we should blame fast food Specifically, I think what we should do is point to um, an economic system that limits choices um, for poor people, and the way that poverty is ra- um, racialized. I think that that w- that's what we should be really concerned about. Um, you know, I think that people should have the freedom to make whatever choice of what they want to eat. I just want that to happen in a context where people can actually have an abundance of choices. That we don't eat something because that's all that's available to us, that we eat things because um, we have all of the choices and all of the information about the choices and we're able to proceed from that place.
0: So to, to some degree, what's happened is the fast food industry has uh, imposed a diet on people.
1: Um, I think they've made a diet that, um, you know, incredibly accessible They've made a diet that is delicious and cheap and it Mm. fits within a context in which people are stretched thin. They don't have a lot of time. A lot of um, families are not, you know, sitting at a dinner table. And so they are fitting within with a context that eating food quickly is something that you need to do.
0: And then they tell you, you can have it your way. Exactly. Well... To some degree, because uh, it, although there is a, a lot of stuff available, it's, it's limited in, in another sense, isn't it? Limited not only uh, because of uh, the logistics of the business, but also just because uh, there are only so many things uh, one restaurant can, can bang out at any given time.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's a it's a pretty ingenious business model because it requires a balance between provisioning um, foods that are shelf stable, foods that are not, you know, frozen foods and otherwise, and training workers to produce this food very, very quickly and in a uniform way and to do it, you know, day in, day out for extended periods of time. It's a pretty it's a pretty sophisticated undertaking that I think is devalued because of the people who do it and because of the of what they earn.
0: Now, your book was published before the COVID pandemic really took hold. How much of an impact has it had? And uh, has the impact been uh, across the board with McDonald's or uh, often more with minority owned McDonald's?
1: Well, this is an issue that was taken up in 2021, where um, black franchise owners said that they were acutely hit by, um, you know, the issues of um, COVID and of having to make adjustments in um, their food offerings, dealing with um, a compromised labor force. Dealing with, um, you know, some places shutting down um, actual dining rooms. You know, the fast food industry um, was able to come on the other, come out pretty okay on the other side of COVID because of the nature of their business. Um, but it was tough. They did, you know, some places um, had a hard time. African American franchisees, some claim that they had a harder time than their white colleagues because um, of the fact that there are disparities um, among the community um, because they are often in urban areas that have a high tax base. They may have very expensive security costs. They might have higher um, wages in that store because of minimum wage laws, like in places like Washington, DC, where I live. And so there was a sense that, um, you know, people who, were already somewhat precarious in the system of franchising, were then more precarious.
0: You're listening to Let it Low, Paid at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. join my conversation with Marcia Chatelaine. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of the book we are discussing, Franchise The Golden Arches in Black America. To do that just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's Go give and the number to wbai.org or give dot org, or again the phone number 212-209-2950. But uh, don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of London Low Paid at Large and we thank you very much and return to Marsha Chatelaine. The book Franchise The Golden Arches in Black America from Liveright. She is a professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown University and the author of, um, uh, well, how many other books? I know Southside Girls, was that it?
1: Yes, I've only written two books.
0: Oh, oh only two. That's two more than I've written, so <laughs> you're way ahead of me. By the late... 2000s, black franchise McDonald restaurants reported total sales exceeding $2 billion. Is that good or bad?
1: It is the nature of business. Hmm. Their earnings, um, sometimes they're very high. And the question is, um, you know, what what we do with those kind of earnings.
0: So in retrospect, has McDonald's been a net negative or a net positive in the black communities that they've served?
1: I think they have created um, an opportunity for some. Um, I think, um, you know, it's interesting to think about um, the implications of, um, you know, their successes. Um, I think they all come at a really high price, and that's what's most important for us to assess.
0: Well, have fast food companies and McDonald's in particular represented a source of economic opportunity, and and political power? They
1: have, um, because you know the the business strength of McDonald's and the high net worth um, individuals who've emerged from the mcdonald's system is is really important um to make note of how that happened i think is the more important part of that story and you know it's it's important to always think about the historical factors that lead to um the presence of a business and its success and the people behind it So, you know, I I think I'm agnostic about, you know, whether there should be fast food in our society. But I do think that at present fast food costs a lot in terms of human capital, in terms of labor, in terms of food resources, in terms of its outsized impact. And so, you know, I think the question for all of us is then, you know, what do we do with business and are there other models? And there are there other ways for us to understand um, how resources come in and out of communities and how we think of racial justice as a problem of the public good and, um, you know, the public resources rather than defaulting to business.
0: So are you saying that McDonald's has an plays an important role in certain communities while being just a place to eat in others?
1: I think it plays an outsized role in um you know, in in certain communities because of neglect, because of racism and because of inequality. And that is a problem.
0: Yeah, well, it's, it remains a problem in this country, whether we're talking about McDonald's or anything else. Absolutely. Uh, and we would have hoped, considering all of the attempts made in recent years to uh, create a a, a a more equitable society, that things would be better today. Are, are you shocked by how far we still have to go? I'm not,
1: because I see how little um, how little we put into solving these problems. Um, every good idea that America has had, uh, we've never taken time to actually invest or think about it. You know we haven't taken time to um uh, you know fund it we haven't had taken time to be patient with it and to take care of it um you know i've been teaching my students about um the war on poverty and you know, i don't think it was a total failure by any means and there were so many elements of it that were never fully kind of um exhausted for their potential so of course we're in the same place um i don't think we have been um, as attentive to history as we need to be in trying to formulate new ideas about old problems. And I think that, you know, you, you get what you get, um, what you give. And when we don't give serious resources, consideration, time and patience to the problems of injustice, then we are just still going to have to deal with injustice.
0: Do you uh, see, see any of that playing out in the president's State of the Union address?
1: oh that's interesting i mean i i I and the reaction to it well i mean the kind of the silly i i mean i i do not like watching the state of the union anymore because it's i think it has just become a form of political theater in terms of the opposition to the ideas being presented in ways that are obnoxious and not helpful but i think that you know we do see the cycle of history you know assault weapons bans um you know, the conversation about policing, the conversation about saving Medicare and, and um, Social Security. You know, we've been down this road before. The question is, you know, are we willing to take uh, bold and aggressive action um, to stop it?
0: My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Marsha Chatelain, C-H-A-T-E-L-A-I-N. Her book franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, is published by Liveright and won a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, she is a professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown University. Millions of people start their mornings with paper-wrapped English muffin breakfast sandwiches <laughs> and then have burritos for lunch and end their evenings with extra-value dinners that they eat in their cars. Now, what about the limited nutritional value of relying mostly on fast food places for our diets?
1: Um, it's probably not the best idea in terms of having a well-rounded diet um, with nutrients and complex carbohydrates and you know all of these things. Um, and it is often um, an incredible um an incredibly reasonable and rational approach um to the day because you don't have time uh you don't have the resources um you know you don't have the opportunity to sit and reflect during mealtime you've got to go 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 and so i don't um you know i don't begrudge anyone for making that choice it's convenient it's fast it's hot it's cheap um the question is what could we change in our society's day-to-day practices so that we don't have to use that criteria to determine what we're going to eat
0: do we know how many black-owned mcdonald's there are in new york city
1: um i i couldn't tell you the number right now um i think it's probably it perhaps is in the maybe the the tens Mm -hmm. um uh, new york city is a kind of an interesting place that resisted mcdonald's for a very long time in manhattan and um the McDonald's in Harlem, um, I don't know if it currently is, but was a black franchised uh, location. Robert
0: Lee Dunham? for oh, Robert
1: Dunham, it, does he still have that McDonald's?
0: Uh, that I don't know, but I know he was, uh, I think he was the first McDonald's owner in Manhattan, wasn't he? Lee
1: Dunham was, yes, and he is yeah. a legend in the world of black McDonald's owners.
0: Uh, a legend because?
1: because um when he inherited that McDonald's kind of territory it was it was a hard place to do business um you know he he really kind of fought to keep up his um his stake in it um and he opened it in 1973 um during a time where again Manhattan was a little bit icy towards McDonald's um and he had to deal with some, you know, gang members in it. Um, you know, he like a lot of these guys. Um, you know, from that era, he had tried to go into another franchise called Chicken Delight. It didn't quite work. Um, you know, and it, it. I think for a lot of these people, um, McDonald's back then they were still kind of going into his, um, you know, store and you know um you know greeting customers and being a real presence and he used to be a police officer as well so he kind of knew the area pretty well
0: you in your new preface you tie this history to the uprisings that followed the killing of of George Floyd in May 2020 and since then we've had a couple of other uh terrible incidents how do they relate
1: Well, I think that after the George Floyd killing and the commencement of the racial justice protests, there was a lot of response from the private sector, from businesses about how they wanted to be part of making a difference. And I think very similar things happened in 1968, where a lot of the focus was on including more African-Americans, you know, promotions, marketing um, opportunities. But I think that there needed there needs to be a little bit more of a thoughtful analysis of the role of business in you know either um, you know compensating and its 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 employees and really investing in local communities versus just um, you know looking at inclusion as the goal. And so I think that you know some of the lessons that my book talks about about 1968 and McDonald's, I hope um, you know would be learned in that moment as well.
0: I'm curious about uh, some of the other things that you might've wanted to talk about. This is a, a, uh, got a, a there's a, a big story that you tell here. I uh, have there, have I missed a couple of things that you think are really important to discuss?
1: No, I appreciate how thorough the questions are. I mean, I think one of the elements that was important to me in terms of, you know, doing this book was to really talk about the cultural life that McDonald's has underwritten in black communities, as well as the history of how it has been connected to the history of civil rights in order to just help people understand and I think be more thoughtful about the ways that we um, we look at food and eating and, you know, evaluate it and judge it and talk about the fast food industry as a problem, instead of thinking about the fast food industry as a reflection of a history of inequality that people are trying to make sense of.
0: Well, Ray Kroc is no longer with us. Who is running uh, the, uh, the national, the overall McDonald's business these days?
1: So the CEO of McDonald's is um, a man named uh, Chris Kaczynski, Um And he came in during a time when McDonald's was going through a lot of uncertainty and, um, the former CEO Steve Easterbrook left um, uh, under circumstances that were, um, you know, a real problem um, for the company, and so he's come in um, and tried to present himself as an open-minded person who, you know, wants to bring McDonald's into the 21st century. Um, and some of the questions about inequality within the system, whether it's you know on the worker side or the black franchisees franchisees side, you know, has continued um, to be issues uh, for McDonald's because, you know, they have yet to be resolved.
0: Well, as a- after the, uh, the Martin Luther King assassination, which we talked about earlier, uh, the civil rights establishment began to see black capitalism as a priority. Didn't many activists turn to entrepreneurship as the means to achieving equality?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, You know, it wasn't just a kind of cynical turn of the federal government or the Nixon administration, it was, you know, um, it was front and center in the minds of people who had experienced, you know, some of the victories of the 1950s and 60s, and were starting to really wonder if it was actually going to have um, an impact on how people's everyday lives were lived.
0: Is it fair to say that owning a fast food uh, business doesn't mean the same thing for everyone?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing that um, shows you just how powerful um, race is in shaping, you know, experiences even among elites that, um, you know, even among the millionaires that are created um, among the McDonald's system, all the millionaires are not having the same experiences or working at the same um, you know, level of, of, of rigor. So I think that um, in many ways, some of the claims and some of the concerns of the black franchise community tell us a lot about the limits of black capitalism as a strategy for uh, transformation.
0: Well, some of the people who succeeded with Mac- McDonald's franchises moved on to other businesses?
1: Um, Some people have um, expanded their portfolio um, by acquiring lots of um, other businesses, um, other McDonald's restaurants. Um, You know, some have ventured into different um, industries. Some will go on to franchise, you know, in hotels. Um, So, yeah, I mean, for some people who have been successful, they've been able to leverage that into um, you know other economic opportunities, and for people who have not been able to hold on to their businesses, it, you know it's a pretty serious mm. um, undertaking, and they have you know, lost out financially.
0: We mentioned that women were banished at first from McDonald's and then uh, wound up being brought in, largely, I guess, through black entrepreneurs. But what is the current situation? Are there many uh, women who are now McDonald restaurant franchisees?
1: Um, so women have entered into franchising. There are some, um, you know, the number is fewer than men. Um, the numbers are, are lower, but um, some families have been able to create generational wealth and generational business owning through McDonald's. And so um, now wives and daughters are part of that network.
0: Has anyone suggested uh, a rethinking of the menu that might uh, lead to uh, healthier food at times?
1: Um, You know, there have been attempts at adding salads and, you know, substituting um, carrot sticks for french fries in the McDonald's menu. I think that, um, you know, some of these are formulated as a response to some of the critiques of McDonald's uh, in terms of... um, you know, the, the quality of the foods. But I think the reality is is that customers do not go to McDonald's, um, you know, to eat healthier foods. They want certain types of foods. And so I question the popularity of, of these items on the menu.
0: What has been the role of civil rights leaders in this uh, whole conversation? Uh, have you know, they been generally supportive?
1: I think, um, you know... This conversation is a little complicated for civil rights leaders, because on one hand, they do um they do very much believe in black capitalism and business ownership and entrepreneurship as a way to leverage communities. And on the other hand, they have stood with um, fast food workers about wages and conditions, and they are also concerned about the quality of the lives of working people. And so I think sometimes um, you know, I think sometimes it's a that's a that's a tough one.
0: What about winning a Pulitzer Prize? <laughs> what has that, has that had an impact on your life?
1: You know, yes and no, it's it's exciting. Um, you know, my friends like to bring it up, um, you know, when we're out and about with friends. But, you know, ultimately what I am very happy about is that it has given me an opportunity to, you know, represent what a historian um, looks like and writes about, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think it is incredibly p- impactful for an emerging generation of scholar um, to, um, you know, to be able to see a book like Franchise get recognized in this way because mm-hmm. it, um, you know, it, it's it's a little unusual and it's a different way of looking at um, history and culture and I think, you know, getting the Pulitzer legitimates it and then it encourages people to do that kind of study also.
0: And the book is called franchise, the golden arches in black America. Um, Congratulations on uh, winning the Pulitzer and on the, the the great success of the book. Uh, I thank you so much for being on our show. You've been a a wonderful guest. And, And if there's anything you want to add now, please Take this opportunity to say what just, you want to say.
1: Oh, just thank you for the, the conversation. And as always, um, you know, I hope this is an opportunity for us to be more thoughtful, empathetic, and discerning um, in, in solving today's problems by looking at the past.
0: Okay. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access... Our 700-plus past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you would like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. It sounds to me like somebody's trying to call me. Uh, Before I sign off today... I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking, BAI has gone through some pretty rough times recently, and um, the pandemic has sure created an even more troubling uh, situation. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 212-209-2950 or by going online to give 2 wbai.org right now that's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number 2wbai.org or give to wbai.org please do it right now because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Franchise the Golden Arches in Black America by Marcia Chatelain. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or by going online? To give to WBAI.org and you might also consider becoming a sustaining member what we call a BAI buddy at $10, $15, $20, $25, however much you feel comfortable supporting us with uh, over an extended period although you can stop it at any time. It allows us to plan for the future and that's really important um, and we will say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 or more. Um, so again, that number, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to wbaiorg uh, But either way, I hope that you'll call right now because WBAI relies 100% on listener donations We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Let It It at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play your part in keeping this historic station the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. Uh, We are off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us again on Monday. We'll see you then.